welcome to the Sanctions Space podcast. I'm Justine Walker, Global Head of Sanctions, Compliance and Risk at ACAMS. This series brings you the stories behind sanctions. Joining me today are two experts on non-state actors, political violence, terrorism and sanctions. Natalia Dukan, who's a senior investigator at the Sentry and who works on the Central African Republic, particularly around the economic and financial drivers of sectarian violence. Noreen Chowdhury-Fink is also joining us today. Noreen is the executive director of the Sufan Center, previously serving as senior policy advisor on counterterrorism and sanctions at the United Kingdom's mission to the United Nations. Natalia, Noreen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Justine. Thanks, Justine. It's great to be here. So in the last podcast, Natalia, we had actually had your colleague on the line, Justina Guzowska. And she talked to us about the atrocities committed by the Wagner Group and how important they are in terms of the war in Ukraine. Since that podcast, I've had lots of people pinging me, lots of people saying, who is Wagner? Can we have more information? So this is what we're going to focus on here. Natalia, a number of people maybe didn't hear the last podcast. Can you just recap for us who is the Wagner Group and why should we be concerned about them? That's not a a surprise that we call the Wagner Group a shadow group because there was little information about their activity abroad. And it's quite recent that the media and NGOs and other groups started to uh, mention their activity and their expanding activities worldwide. So the Wagner Group is a paramilitary organization, from what we know, that was created in 2014 by Vladimir Putin's close ally and a St. Petersburg oligarch. Yevgeny Prigozhin. To the question, who is truly the Wagner Group? I like the image that we call the Wagner mercenaries as modern pirates. We have been observing that men hired by the Wagner Group have been committing systematic torture, mass rapes, and they've been unleashing terror in the areas where they've been deployed. What is important to know is that Wagner has no legal existence. It's a private military company, but the Russian constitution forbid those companies. Since its creation, the group has been expanding to numerous countries from Ukraine to Syria and African countries in recent years. Also, what is important to understand is that the group is acting as a a weapon to expand Russia's influence abroad. What we observe also in the field based on the investigation we've been carrying in Central African Republic and elsewhere is that they are engaged in a hybrid warfare with the West. It's difficult to appreciate the size of the group. At first, it was reported that there were a few hundred former military recruits, but today sources mentioned 50,000 men deployed in Ukraine, around 2,000 in CAR in Central African Republic, 600 in Mali. But the group activity is opaque, so it's nearly impossible to know precisely how many men are sent abroad in military operations. And it is also impossible to know how many of them die in battlefield. This is something that is less discussed, but more and more we raise the human uh, toll uh, related to Wagner's activity. In terms of what we've been tracking in Central Africa at the Century for five years now, we spoke with dozens of victims and perpetrators of atrocities that were sent in joint military operation with Wagner. I think what shocked us the most is the systematic use of terror and fear by our our interlocutors. They really explain uh, stories of massacres of entire village 
and the orders were coming from Wagner mercenaries themselves. We've seen orders uh, from uh, kill everyone, including women and children, leave no trace. Uh, those are the orders from the mercenaries. We should not consider Wagner as a traditional mercenary group, but more as a powerful weapon used by Russia. And we should all feel threatened by its expansion because it's a rising global threat. Natalia, thank you very much. Noreen, I'm going to turn to you. The Sofon Santa is new to the podcast. And for those of you who don't know about the organization, you're not for profit, you offer research analysis, strategic dialogue across the global security platform, foreign policy issues, particularly focusing on counterterrorism, violent extremism. Beyond what Natalia has indicated, from your perspective, Wagner Group and groups like them, why should we be so concerned about them? Thanks, Justine, for the invitation to be here. As an organization that has focused so much on the threat of global security and terrorism, as you say, you know, the Wagner Group is a serious concern for us for a couple of reasons. So let me just go through them. First, with nearly half of all the terrorism deaths now in sub-Saharan Africa, I think we see the potential for the Wagner Group to further exacerbate these challenges in the region as a very, very dangerous precedent, particularly the way they offer security to governments, you know, at any cost. I think the reported expansion into Burkina Faso will give them an especially strong foothold in the region, unless they are also subsequently removed for failing to quell the jihadist violence. And we have seen them fail before. So there is a possibility that it's not a permanent intrusion, but it's certainly a dangerous precedent. And the worry is, of course, that it also further risks stability in all the neighboring states. Furthermore, we see that Wagner's influence has made things like peacekeeping in the region quite difficult, and it's threatening security partnerships. So those states or regional organizations or bodies like the UN that have been traditionally seen as kind of a mitigating influence or a partner in, in managing peace and security in the region, it's making life a lot more difficult for them. And I think that is a longer term concern. Second, and we know this was recently reaffirmed by UNDP again, that experiences of human rights violations can really drive support for and recruitment by extremist groups. And Wagner's deliberately brutal tactics, which Natalia mentioned, and as they've showcased, you know, shamelessly in campaigns in Syria, Ukraine, and Africa, are likely to exacerbate grievances and conditions that create hospitable environments for terrorism and violence. So that's a wider and more long-standing concern. I mean, we saw just recently UN experts have called for an immediate independent investigation into gross human rights abuses for war crimes, crimes against humanity committed in Mali by government forces and Wagner. The problem is these things take time, right? And the continued impunity they enjoy can further raise their credibility and desirability in the region. And then a third issue, and this is one of the wider concerns as well, we've seen that the presence of external actors can exacerbate and prolong conflict and instability. We saw this with foreign terrorist fighters traveling to Syria and Iraq, and we see this with Wagner in Ukraine and Africa. So, you know, the expansion has not only resulted in brutal tactics used in these theaters of operation, but this really predatory approach to Wagner to expand their revenue sources, bypass formal financial channels, you know, accepting their payments in gold, diamonds and commodities, which can then make their way to Moscow's leadership and encourage their, shall we say, interventions abroad. 
I want to pick up on an article that the Sofen Center recently wrote, and it was really around Wagner's growing role in Ukraine and the evidence that is not an autonomous organization, but a Russian proxy doing the bidding of Russian President Vladimir Putin, the article actually said. Can you expand on this a bit further? How do you draw a distinction or not between Wagner, Putin, the Russian government? Where do they merge? Where do they separate? I think Natalia used a great term earlier. She said pirates and she used the word shadows. And I think those are great terms because we know that in history, pirates have operated sometimes independently for their own benefit, but often with the support of a head of state and often because they were able to offer that head of state some benefit. So as we heard, mercenarism and these kinds of private military security companies are illegal in Russia. It would be inconceivable to run an organization like Wagner in Russia without support from the very top. We've seen so far only Kadyrov and Prigozhin have been able to do so. You know, we know Putin and Prigozhin have a personal history. And I think the fact that Prigozhin is allowed to run Wagner and more and more publicly acknowledge it speaks to a level of trust and support from the highest level of government. I think earlier, a couple of months too ago, we saw Prigozhin's comfort level in critiquing the running of the war, throwing his support uh, behind Surovokin and a more brutal approach. And I think that really speaks to a level of confidence in his position and trust with the leadership. Beyond that, I think, you know, Wagner's forays into Africa and Syria have aligned with state interests and created space for a symbiotic approach in the region between what Wagner is doing and then what the formal state system is doing. And, you know, we see Wagner's influence in Mali. We see Foreign Minister Lavrov just visiting Mali just a couple of days ago. So Wagner's influence in the Sahel has been complemented by increased government diplomacy in the region. Um increased kind of access to resource and commodities given to Wagner and in exchange for their services are also reportedly lining pockets in Moscow. And as we said, you know, this allows them to bypass the financial constraints imposed by sanctions. Closely linked as Wagner is to the government and its reliance on the discretion and indulgence of Putin, we know that as the leader gives, so he can also take away. And I think that is important to remember that while they can be utilized by the government and can serve as this kind of force multiplier of the government, they can also be checked at some point if Putin feels that will be necessary. The recent appointment of Gerasimov uh, may be seen as a check on Prigozhin, who was boasting of Wagner's successes in Ukraine and critiquing the formal defense establishment. So I, I think there is scope for tension there. And so we know that these things are not just because they're in a good relationship today. It may not always be uh, so tomorrow. And we've seen now that Gazprom has been reportedly given permission to establish a private security company. So there could be trouble in their version of paradise. I also think that, you know, while we understand that the, the sort of combat group of Wagner is led by Dmitry Utkin, it's linked to a range of Prigozhin-linked companies, which serve as fronts in different locations we've seen in Sudan, for example. And so, as Natalia mentioned, it's not just one organization, it's almost like a hydra for all these companies to exist and be successful really depend on an important and trusting relationship between Putin and Prigozhin. Absent that or changes in that, we will most certainly see an impact on the relationship between Wagner and the state. 
Gosh, that complexity of relationships is really considerable then. And I want to stay with articles because I've been looking at a lot of the articles about this group recently. And Noreen, that's a great example that you've given us around just how that all comes together and indeed separates and some of the vulnerabilities there. Natalia, if I think about some of the articles that you and Justina have recently been publishing, one of them really stood out to me and it was titled Russia's Bloody Sledgehammer. And this is where you called for the Wagner Group to be designated by the US as a foreign terrorist organization. Now, you know, for listeners who are not aware, and I think most people will be aware now, you know, Wagner are already designated as a transnational criminal organization. So in practical terms, having this different type of designation, what does that really mean? Why is that so important? Well, precisely because we believe that Wagner is a global threat that uses terror as a way to make, to achieve its objectives, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we believe that we need to use the most powerful economic tools that are available. And let me explain. So far, the US and even the EU have been uh, imposing sanctions against several individuals and entities linked to Wagner. But what we observe is that the group has been able to grow stronger and to expand. Sanctions alone will not allow to undermine or to counter the threat of what is the group doing. So it is important to go beyond. Imposing sanctions are important, we think, because to counter a transnational criminal organization just like Wagner is, uh, because it's precisely using different companies that they register in countries where they operate, and then they use those entities and names of individuals to do business. So that's how they enter the financial, economic and economic system. So sanctions can be an, an, uh, a powerful tool, but uh, we think that they need to expand how it's been implemented. First, there needs to be a more concerted and multilateral effort to target their commercial footprint, in particular from the US, the UK, and the European Union. So far, they haven't been really coordinating their policy tool and the, the, the sanctions. Also, it's important that sanctions apply to the in-country enablers, meaning that regimes and kleptocrats or autocrats that have been welcoming Wagner in their country, it's important that we start creating a cost for their operation, because most of the time we observe that it's very opportunistic that they benefit from Wagner's presence by consolidating their power, but also doing business and enriching themselves, but it doesn't benefit the population to the contrary. Why designating Wagner as an FTO is interesting is, as I said, there is a political project behind Wagner. And so it's not just a criminal, a transnational criminal organization. Uh, it has an ideology. One is to expand Russia's influence. The second one, and that we've been really tracking with our investigation is targeting Western interests. And it's kind of in the DNA of Wagner. So it's very important to them. So designating Wagner as an FTO, it brings with it a criminal statute known as the Material Support Statute. And this law is extraterritorial. So foreign companies tomorrow that will continue to do business with Wagner could be subject to criminal penalties. 
Yeah, and that material support element's really critical. But there's a threshold, isn't there, to be met for this type of designation? And Noreen, do you think that, you know, we've got to do the threshold here? Are they likely to meet that threshold? I think that, yes, in many cases as an FTO, certainly if we look at investigating the actions that we've heard reported in places like Mali and Karen and Mozambique, we will see levels that will meet an FTO designation, I'm sure. I think where they are operating in a conflict environment, certainly they are also committing war crimes. And so I think that sort of behavior, whether it's in an armed conflict environment or outside an armed conflict and is very terroristic behavior, in both cases, we will see it meeting fairly high thresholds. I'm persuaded by all the reporting we've seen. So I I think there is a case there certainly to be made for an FTO designation. Do you think others will designate them? Do you think the UK, I mean, rumours are that the UK may look at designating them. Do you think we'll see that happen? It's difficult. You know, the kinds of statements one hears is that it's under consideration. And I think the fact that in the US uh, they've been designated as a criminal organisation, you know, suggests that states are keeping that FTO designation as a next layer to be used if and when necessary. So I think there's a sort of layering approach going on, reserving that designation as kind of a final incentive or a final threshold at the end. So it's hard to know. It sounds like it's under consideration very strongly. Thanks, Noreen. Natalia, uh, one of the lines I really want to discuss with you is around just the finances here, because Wagner's African mining projects are reported to be in the millions, if not billions. From a financial footprint, and particularly African financial footprint, you know, how big a concern is it? You know, how are they just able to operate on this scale? It's true that Wagner has been uh, conducting business activities in all the countries where they operate, and it seems that they even choose them because they are resource-rich countries. Uh, so it's no hazard. They have a particular appetite for the gold, but also the diamond and oil and other valuable minerals or resources such as timber. We can see uh, they created a company in car called Bois Rouge Redwood to uh, exploit uh, timber as well. So they are interested in making as much money as they can. But what we also observe is that, it, well, first, it's difficult to appreciate or assess how much money they are making because they operate in a, an opaque way. And so it's very difficult to know how much is being exported to where and the scale of it. But what we saw in particular in CAR is that in the first few years when they arrived, they spent probably a lot more money than they make money. They invested a lot into the propaganda to show Russia as the savior and the Westerners as the colonialists. They've been financing and sponsoring marches, protests, local travel factory, and all this was uh, money they were bringing within the form of US dollar notes. But in the meantime, they were trying to counter the threat of armed groups controlling most of the resources in the country. So it's interesting to see that they've been spending a lot of money without actually making any or very few. So it's in recent years in CAR that we saw that they've been controlling a gold mine, for instance, that they are exploiting at an industrial scale. Uh, We suspect that some of the gold is being sent to Sudan and very likely to Russia. But the question we might ask is whether they're using it for sanction evasion. It's a possibility. 
But uh, most importantly, I think it's just a way to self-finance their expansion strategy. Noreen, it's incredible that groups such as the Wagner Group have been really able to expand such large-scale business operations across Africa and you know, other parts of the world. What does the business operations look like? How have these groups you know, and other paramilitary groups been able to essentially develop these business empires? They've been laying the groundwork for a while, as Natalia, I think, outlined really well. They have found openings where there's resource opportunity to exploit. But also, you know, we've they've served in different forms, right? They facilitate security, however that sounds, um, for government. They've served as Praetorian guards for individual leaders. And these are powerful contracts that allow them access to resources. But they have been also backed by state diplomacy and they've exploited, I think, also weaknesses, um, you know, if other actors have not delivered the kind of security and stability that communities are looking for. And so through this shadowy network of front companies, uh, they've really been able to gather a very valuable network of countries and access to resources that also is, you know, in many ways, uh, shall we say, cheaper for the governments they're working with because it doesn't come at the cost of human rights questions. It doesn't come at the cost of further governance obligations. So they're able to portray themselves as a cheaper, effective option. And this whole sort of role of mercenary groups, I mean, do you see them playing a bigger role in conflicts going forwards? Are there particular hotspots you're focused on? I think that we have seen this quite a lot in other countries. So it's not a new phenomenon. We've seen this certainly in the war in Iraq um, and other places. But I think the Sahel is the region I'd say experts are most concerned about. And I think depending how things go in Ukraine, you could see its presence increase, certainly in the Black Sea region. We already hear reports of smaller groups coming up, you know, the so-called Mozart group, and then now this other group from Gazprom. There are concerns about what's happening in Moldova. So that will be a concern about whether some of the neighboring and satellite countries, so the conflict are the target of groups like Wagner. We will need to see how this expected spring offensive goes before we can see how Wagner is going to move in the region and what Russia's footprint looks like. Two other areas I would be quite concerned about, again, Iraq and Syria, but also South Asia and Afghanistan. Depending how things play out in Afghanistan, we'll want to see if it is an incentive to send out private military companies. And certainly in many cases, they seem an easier option than governments. And I think as long as there's a lack of accountability, um, and this has been raised by many experts and, and organizations, they will continue to seem an attractive option for uh, nefarious deeds by governments. As we look at drawing this to a close, I want to ask you both actually the same question. It's a very practical compliance question because a lot of people who listen to the podcast work in the compliance community. If you were working in sanctions compliance, let's say in a bank or indeed law enforcement investigations, how would you follow the money? What would you do? How would you map the potential exposure to the Wagner Group? Where would you start? You want to look at the Wagner Group, you want to identify them, you want to disrupt them. How would you go about identifying their funding sources? Natalia, can I ask you this first? I think sanction screening is interesting, but it is not enough because we've seen that they create companies the day and the next day they create another one. So it's very difficult to track. However, it is important to do it. If I were working in compliance, I think at the minimum, 
I would conduct uh, due diligence on transactions involving resources from countries where Wagner is known to be present. I think that is where we need to stress is uh, resources uh, that we know Wagner is um, exploiting and uh, exporting, particularly gold, diamond, and other valuable resources. Thanks for that, Natalia. Noreen, any other insights you'd give to our sanctions and indeed law enforcement investigations community? How can they track and disrupt the Wagner Group? I think building on what Natalia said, because I think she gave a fantastic summary, I would follow the diplomacy and defense as well, because as I said, Wagner has been operating in a symbiotic relationship with formal state processes. So I would look at where the state is directing diplomatic attention and engagement to see where Wagner might go next and look at some of the interests there and also where defense is, you know, where they're directing sort of defense rhetoric or security concerns. And I think those also help foreshadow where you might find enablers, right? So diplomatic relationships, certainly we can see countries that may be hosting front companies, countries that may be enabling the passage of commodities. Those political relationships are often quite out there and open and where there are good relationships, often transactions follow. So it's worth tracking the defense and diplomacy side of it too. Natalia, Noreen, thank you so much. You have really helped to answer the question that everybody was asking me on who is Wagner. I do hope listeners have found today's discussion useful. Do join our masterclasses, monthly updates for more detailed. Join us for the Global Sanctions Summit and our mainstream Hollywood conference. Thank you for listening. Please do sign up to hear the stories behind sanctions. Noreen, Natalia, again, thank you so much. Thanks, Jetsi. Thanks, Justine.